Who is a more radical anachronism, a writer or a lungfish? Probably the writer. Everybody else performs his role in society by participating in some sort of system. The writer is literally out of it. A book, especially a novel, is the unalloyed expression of one unalloyed self, a survival of insane individuality, in an era where sanity means homogenation with countless others intermeshing, being a cog on a wheel. The novelist is, is perhaps the one archaically pure entrepreneur left, needing no machinery or workforce, no orchestra, no paint, no canvas or brushes even, neither chisel nor marble. All this strange slob needs is his nerve ends and one old pencil end to have a go at the world. But the lungfish, lucky thing, never knows that he is an aberration. The writer does get to know it once he's finished writing his novel. And that's where his paranoia starts. At that point, the dream he has dreamed for his readers must be distributed by a publisher. In other words, it must be ground through the very corporate machine to which the writer stands in metaphysical opposition. That corporate machine has been perfected for the propagation of Cadillacs, ash cans, hemorrhoid preparations, but now it has to merchandise one man's fantasies for $6.95. Here is where the writer's tension and psychosis sets in. Kafka enters the Kafkaesque. Now, one of the bad things about literary paranoia is that no matter how often your novelist has been through it, he's never prepared to experience it again. So I will start with my unsuspectingness, or with, white, or with what you might almost call, after six books, my seventh virginity. In January 1966, I sat down to start a novel entitled Snow Gods. I had an advance in the succulent five figures. The publishers, the New American Library, was, quote, eager to develop a powerful fiction line. And my editor, Hal Charlotte, had and has a name for being open to literary experimentation. <laughs> my vacation is when I'm working, Federico Fellini once said, not only about himself, but about the creative proletariat in general. For two years, for five hours a day, six to seven days a week, I had a great vacation. Now and then, there were rumbles from the corporate machine. Hal Charlotte informed me one day that he was switching to Random House and that he would be happy to make me a permanent and congenial home there. Incidentally, not too long after that, he switched to Dutton and told me that he would be happy to make me a permanent and congenial home there. At any rate, the only visible effect of this change was that my lunch partner at the ground floor restaurant switched from Hal Charlotte to Bob Gottwillick, who made even wittier speculations about what in hell I was writing for him for all that money. Whatever it was, it was finished by January 68. The vacation is over. The paranoia begins with a treacherous idol. To render the symptoms as nakedly and therefore instructively as possible, I'll give them to you direct, by way of excerpts from my diary. January 68. Bob Gottwillick, Editor-in-Chief, New American Library, 
crazy about snow gods. Says it'll conquer the critics and the bestseller lists and the story editors of movie studios. Says it's Swiftian satire, my final breakaway from being the biographer of the Rothschild, that image and that whole bag. Hooray, hooray. Or, as Napoleon's mother said when he proclaimed himself emperor, it should only last. Only minor revisions are necessary. Publication date June or July to get big space for the big reviews. February 68, minor revisions finished. Bob Gutwillick orders impressive dust jacket design dominated by lettering saying Snow Guards by Frederick Morton and not even a tiny line on the jacket shilling, quote, author of the Rothschilds, unquote. Eli Wallach, actor and friend down the block, has taken a fine photograph of me. I look like Humphrey Bogart, a la Viennese Jew. Fine lobster ground floor restaurant with Bob Gutwillick. Early March 68. Rumors that Gutwillick is moving from the New American Library to head the literary department of the William Morris Agency. It turns out that the offer has been made, but he's turned it down. And instead, the entire hardcover operation of the New American Library will move over to World Publishing, both being subsidiaries of the Los Angeles Times Mirror. Snow Guards to be published under the imprint of both. And who cares about corporate juggling as long as Snow Guards is a Swiftian blockbuster even if the manuscript was lost for three days during the migration from one subsidiary to another. Excellent striped bath at the ground floor with Bob Gutwillick. Late March 68. Book of the Month Club and Literary Guild have turned thumbs down on Snow Gods. Too black a book. Someday I ought to write a nice baby blue son of the Rothschilds for them. Dust jacket's still not finished because the art department can't come up with the background of delicate snowflakes patterns they want. Proof of Eli Wallach's photograph of myself. Come back with credit line reading Ira Wallach. Bob Gutwillick treats me to extra special salade niçoise at the ground floor and says the organizational kinks of the merger of New American Library with World Publishing have not yet been worked out. Early April, 68, the first galley proofs are in, but not even a preliminary version yet of the dust jacket because the art department's still trying to perfect those absolutely perfect snowflakes. The Eli Wallach photograph sent back to correct the credit line, now returns to me with a credit line saying Irving Wallace. Very funny. So is Bob Gottwillick's wry refrain that, quote, all organizational kinks haven't been worked out yet. Or maybe it's not so funny because those kinks will now force postponement of publication from July to September. But God, Bob Gottwillick still thinks the book is a Swiftian blockbuster, and so does Ed Kuhn, the publisher, and so do a number of other very enthusiastic advanced readers. And the striped bass is still great at the ground floor. May 68, 
first printing of Snow Gods set at 15,000, though announced in Publishers Weekly as 25,000. I asked Bob, Bob Gottwillink about that. Fiction is fiction, is the answer. Dust jacket still not ready after nearly four months of trying. Arthur Parkman has finally coughed up satisfactory snowflakes, but snowflakes of the kind which make the lettering, according to them, quote, aesthetically incongruous. So a great search is on for congruous lettering. But on the other hand, the proof of Eli Wallach's photo arrived with, breath with breathtakingly correct credit line. The ground floor salmon is pretty good. June 68, dust jacket is still not ready after five months of trying. The art department is on a worldwide search for aesthetically congruous lettering, congruous with snowflakes. Merger King still haven't been straightened out, says Bob Gutwillig. Tolerable Saul Meunier at the Grand Floor Restaurant and publication postponed for the second time, now from September to November. July 68, I have left for Austria. Somebody, somewhere, is trying to get me. And the theory is that he'll quit once I get out of sight. He hasn't quit yet. There is still no dust jacket. The art department has been added some 20 weeks now, and nothing. I cable an inquiry from Austria to New York. By return mail, the New American Library World office sends me advanced galleys of novels by Pete Hamill and Josh Greenfeld, asking me for quotes. No word on the dust jacket. I cable again. Now return mail brings snow gods galleys whose corrections were lost and which I must correct all over again. Still no word on the dust jacket. I make a transatlantic phone call, collect, to phone in the galley corrections and ask about the dust jacket. Bob Gottwillick's secretary reports that the art department has been slowed by vacation. By vacations. All the merger kings haven't been straightened out yet. Is this a farce or is it conspiracy? August 68. <clears throat> thank God, thank God it seems to be farce. The dust jacket has actually arrived. My name is misspelled slightly, it's true. Frederick Morton with a K in the Frederick instead of without the K. And in the front matter, the title of one of my books has been changed Freudianly from Witching Ship to Witching Slip. But the dust jacket is here. Out of sheer gratitude, I try to read the galleys of Pete Hamill's book. But I can't because of the unreadable type of the galleys. I try Josh Greenfeld's book where the type is better, genuinely like it, even though the last two pages are missing in the galleys, and I send in a quote, together with a query about the reactions to my own advanced galleys. And I keep staring at the incredible reality of that dust jacket. And I seem to sniff, ever so faintly, a smell of cyanide. September 68, back in New York, dust jacket worse than cyanide. The sample set to me in Austria was an artist's dummy. In the printer's proofs made from that dummy, 
the title and the author's name blur invisibly into those absolutely perfect snowflakes. See, the snowflakes are blue, and the lettering, which is aesthetically all too congru congruous, is also blue, and the face of the author is blue. Dialogue at the ground floor restaurant between Morton and Gott Willie. Morton. Christ, Bob, have them print the lettering in red. Bob Gott Willie. I told them to, but they refuse. Morton. But you are the obscene participle editor-in-chief. Gott Willie. They are the obscene participle New American Library. I'm the obscene participle World Publishing. Editor. All the merger kings haven't been worked out yet. Ground floor chicken, not what it used to be. Did that truck on 6th Avenue deliberately try to run me over? October 68. Publication postponed for the third time, now from November 68 to January 69. Art department, which has been working on the dust jacket design for eight months now, swears to have workable version ready by Armistice Day. All the snow gods, advanced galley, sent out for quotes, seem to have been lost, so new ones are made. The quote I myself gave to Josh Greenfeld's novel has been lost. The photo taken of me of Eli Wallach with the finally right credit line has been lost. The negative, the glossies, and all. Weird Bray comes from the closet, as, comes from a closet at World Publishing Office as I passed. Somebody who's out to get me is keeping a goat there, specially trained to eat all papers relating to me. Maybe they're breeding a whole herd of goats to eat up all the snow gods' copies they'll be printing. Even the striped bass at the ground floor tastes faintly but unmistakably of goat. November 69. After nine months, the art department has finally come up with the ideal workable jacket they say. This jacket is printed, and the entire first printing of 15,000 jacket ha has to be thrown out because the lettering is still unreadable. Don't worry, says Bob Godwillick. It's coming out of the advertising budget. And he adds more seriously, you see, all the merger kings haven't been straightened out yet. But what comes now is the kink of kinks. The new-bound galleys of Snow God sent out to reviewers, sent to literary names, etc. These new galleys have the pages of another book mixed into it. Repeat, have the pages of another book mixed into it. Right smack in the middle of my Swiftian blockbuster set in a Swiss luxury resort is a history of basketball complete with Wilt Chamberlain and Red Auerbach. I am buying arsenic. Who shall die first? Bob Gutwillick, who admits he knows about the basketball inserts, but thought the publicity office had recalled the galleys? Or the publicity people who knew about the basketball inserts too, but thought that the Bob Gutwillick office had recalled the inserts, had recalled the galleys with the inserts? The goat in the closet brays hilariously. I keep very close to, God, to Bob Gutwillick on our way to the ground floor restaurant. They are snipers on the rooftops everywhere. December 68. First reviews in. Based, no doubt, in part on the Red Auerbach alleys. 
Publishers Weekly hates snow gods. Crawl is one of my main characters, a black meme who has an obsessive aversion to singing, to dancing, to anything to do with music. Crawl's him, a musician. Crawl's another main character who is a pianist, a symphony conductor, and at the end of the usual capsule review states again that the first printing, which is actually 15,000, will be 25,000. So don't tell me there are no snipers on the roofs. True, the Saturday Review has an unqualified super rave on snow gods, comparing it to Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain, and gets all the characters right. But why run such a review weeks before publication during Christmas vacation time in the thinnest, most unread issue of the year? Solemn bow. To read no more reviews, to speculate no more, but to eat no longer any world-publishing lunches at the ground floor restaurant where all the busboys are assassins. January 69, Snow Gods is out with an almost decipherable dust jacket. That is, you can read my name and the title if you bend very closely over it. I am off on a radio TV tour across the nation killing myself with 23 interviews in Chicago, from big-time TV like the Cupsnet Show to intellectual radio like, like Studs Terkel. Think there are telescopic gun sights trained on me here, too, but wasn't sure till I visited the bookstores. Brent's class bookstore on the Gold Coast has no copies at all. Owner's quote, we sold out before you got here, but who knows when we'll get more with your publisher's distribution. Same no-copy story at most other stores, except Croc and Brentano's, the most important book emporium in the Midwest, with a giant main store and many branches throughout Chicago. The story here is a little different because no Croc and Brentano store, big or small, ever got a single copy of the Snow Gods in the first place. They had ordered a considerable shipment, but nothing arrived, and nobody can explain why, except maybe the goat I hear braying faintly across the continent. San Francisco. Fifteen more interviews in four back-breaking days, from panel bantering with Tiny Tim to sociology on Pacifica stations, and no books in any of the stores. I'm saturating the airwaves, asking the public to buy copies which do not exist on any shelves. I know they've got knife throwers after me here, and I'd say so right on TV, but I found out that the lenses on the cameras are gun muzzles. The only thing that consoles me is that those damn goats must be dying of indigestion. Los Angeles. A 17-interview show madness, exhaustion and absurdity. Of the eight important bookstores, none have or recently had a copy of Snow Gods. The only exception is Campbell's Bookstore and Pickwick Books, Pickwick being the local giant, where it is the number where it is number seven on their local on where it is number seven on their fiction bestseller list, and where they are dying in vain for a new shipment. I phone New York furiously and make believe that I haven't found out about the goats. 
and therefore ask the gut willing office why the hell they are never there are just never any follow-up shipments to bookstores that sold out snow guards the answer well that's one kink we're trying to straighten out there is a certain linotypist, the same one who puts the basketball episodes into my galleys, who follows me around on rooftops, trying to drop a brick on me. And I'm about to expose him on the Dialing for Dollars TV show when the MC tells his audience how much Aldous Huxley, who died in 1963, loved snow gods written years later. There's no strength left to point out that the Huxley praise in the jacket plainly refers to an earlier work. There's just hysterical laughter. I laugh hysterically all the way home. <laughs> Drowning out even the goats. Cut, dissolve, 10 months later. November 1969. Occupational therapy, like writing essays and a play, and going skiing and having nice little coffee breaks work. I'm released in care of my agent. Only a few butterfingered snipers here and there. Bob Gottwillick and other top team members of World Publishing have been organized out of world. Now the New American Library sends me the jacket design for the Snow Gods paperback edition, which they are about to print. Jacket design looks like a bar mitzvah in the nude. They enclose with the design a request that I supply a publicity biography. I call them up. Use the bio world publishing has, I say. Oh, says the little voice in the earpiece. I don't know whether they could locate it. You see, right now they are trying to straighten out some of their organizational kinks. And in the background, I hear faintly the braying of a goat. 